We're going to read the whole Bible this morning, <laughs> so we won't do that. Uh, but there is quite a section, but it's good stuff too. So we need to, uh, if you go to Luke 19, <clears throat> we're going to be reading from verse 28 down to the end of that chapter. We've got the triumphant uh, entry there, this story, and then uh, Jesus at the temple as well. That's correct, Mike? Yep, and then we're going to jump over to uh, chapter 21, but I'll let you know when we get to there. But let's follow along. Let's not just read, but let's take these words in, drink them in as we read them, so that you've got even an understanding before Mike uh, even speaks to us this morning. I'm reading from the NIV, doesn't matter. Uh, whatever version you have, you can follow along. From verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anybody asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words we go to chapter 21 we're going to be starting from verse 5 there through to the end chapter 21 from verse 5 <clears throat> some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned in beautiful stones with the gifts dedicated to God but Jesus said as for what you see here the time will come when not one stone will be left on another Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and, and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them. 
But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of you, none of your adversaries, will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfilment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Thanks, John. Well, good morning, church. I, um, I've got this neat little gadget on my wrist. For Father's Day, I've got a, a Fitbit. And uh, I have the opportunity to see what my heart rate's doing for the duration of while I'm up here. So at the moment, things are going all right. We'll uh, see how it transpires by the end of, uh, of this morning. Around 15 years or so ago, the Victorian government changed the law um, in order to allow wards of the state to gain access to their um, locked away files relating to them, if they made application for them. Uh, move forward a few years and around 10 or 11 years ago, I was sitting in an office building in Collins Street in the city um, with a group of other people that had made application to, uh, to get access to their files. And as we're sitting there, there was a group of social workers there with us and they were explaining what we, would, what we would find out as those files were opened and read. They said we would find out things like the name of our mother, we would find out her age, um, we would find out um, her, whether she had a job or not at the time. We would also find out things like a brief description of what she looked like and we would find out some of the thoughts that the social workers at the time had of her. 
was she mature or immature and, and the like. One of the other things they said that we would find when we read through the file was we would, we would find all the detailed notes that the social workers took over the years as they come to visit us. Obviously, once you become a ward of the state, the government takes primary care for your welfare and social workers become a part of your life. So as the files are read, you get to see um, something of what the social workers thought of where you're at and what your well-being was like. They mentioned something really telling as they were handing out the files to, to this group of us. Um, one of them got up and said, what you need to understand is that the people, uh, the social workers that wrote in these files never thought what they wrote here would become public knowledge. They never thought that the people they were writing about would ever get to see what they had written. And she went on to say that the reality is for some of you people, some of what you read about your mother and indeed some of what you read about your childhood from the perspective of the social workers is going to be pretty brutal. It's going to be hurtful. Some of you are going to struggle with it. And I recall as we, as we, stood, as we sat around a group waiting for the, for the files to be handed out, there was this, this almighty sense of anticipation. Finally, we were going to get to know something about a mother that we had never known. And, and there was just this anticipated excitement as the files are, uh, were handed out. The procedure was to, to go that uh, you would read through your file from front to back um, while you were still uh, in the office so that you had an opportunity to talk to the social workers about it if there were things that you didn't understand or you wanted to clarify. Once you had finished reading it, if you didn't have any questions, you were free to go. Now, being a, a ward of the state for my entire childhood, my file was quite a bit thicker than everyone else's. So I had the opportunity as I was, as I was looking through my files to to take note of the reactions of the people around, around about. And the whole mood in that room had changed as people started to open the files and read what was in there. There were some, some people there who uh, were content with what they had seen. It was what they expected. They were able to move on with their life. There were some people with tears running down their faces. Uh, there were some people with just stony looks that gave away nothing. There was all sorts of emotions coming out. There were some that had plenty of questions to ask the social workers about what they were reading, and there were others who didn't say anything from the moment they opened the files until the time they left. And as part of the process, uh, they gave us uh, contact details of, certain, of different groups that could help you um, get in touch with um, for the most part, your mother, if you wish to do, do so. So I subsequently got in, got in touch with this wonderful not-for-profit organisation based in Carlton, and after a while I, I received a phone call and they said, uh, we'd like to catch up with you, we've got some information about your mother. Um, so a little while later, I'm standing there outside their offices, it was a converted uh, terrace house in Carlton, and there is this uh, excited sense of anticipation that I'm feeling. And I knew that I had to try and settle this nervous energy that I felt inside. A few deep breaths, a quick prayer, because finally, after so many years, I was about to find out about a mother that I had never known. I was about to find out how I could get in contact with her 
And um, before long, I would have the opportunity to tell her about Jesus. This was something ever since I became a Christian, I knew God wanted me to do. To tell her what Jesus has done for me, she can do for you. Uh, Anticipation, we all experience it. It's that expectation that something special is about to transpire. Though we don't always know exactly what this might look like. Often anticipation leads to excitement or a sense of suspense as we await for for an outcome that we're not absolutely sure of. Our VCE results are a classic example, or those of us who are older, the HSC results. Back in the day when you used to stand beside the letterbox waiting for the postie to come by with your results. Nowadays you just, just look on your phone or on the computer and... More often than not, your friends seem to know your results even before you do. That sense of anticipation, have I done as well as I thought I have? Maybe there's going to be a a great surprise and I'm going to get an even better mark than I expect. That job application, it's gone well. You feel that it's the right thing for you. It's the right job for you. You've answered the questions as best you could and now it's just a matter of waiting with anticipation. Are you going to get the right response? Earlier on this year, Paul told us about the challenging time he had in trying to find exactly the right time to propose to Mel. And those of us who are husbands or prospective husbands know what that's like. I mean, we, we kind of know this girl well. We've been going out for a period of time and there's this sense of anticipation as we, as we ask them to marry us that they're going to say yes but we don't actually know for absolutely certain because we've all heard of stories where it hasn't quite gone according to plan. Sometimes it's moving house. Finally, we get to get to move into that place that's going to be most suitable for us. Or that long-awaited holiday. We anticipate that it's going to be all that that, uh, we look forward to. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But anticipation is not restricted to such big ticket items in our lives. Sometimes it can be as simple as as catching up with an old friend. Sometimes when the pastor rings and says, hey, I want to catch up with you, there's an anticipation, uh, what are they wanting? What have I done? Am I in trouble? Am I going to be able to do what they might want me to do? Shabu rings up and says, hey, can I catch up with a cup of coffee? Uh, What is he actually expecting from me? Sometimes it's just knowing that when you get home that evening, uh, you've, got, you've got kids who are going to come and embrace you. Daddy, mummy, welcome home. Parents, I want to tell you to cherish those times because the day will come and you'll walk in the door and, and if your teenager gives you a grunt, that means that you've, you're someone special in their lives. <laughs> That's just the way it, it, it gets. I would hope that as you come to church this morning, there's a sense of anticipation. What would God want you to learn? How would God want you to serve? Is there someone new here that you can welcome? Is there someone with a need that you can minister to? A sense of anticipation as you meet with God's people. Well, we've reached that stage in Luke, as John read for us so well, where Jesus approaches the gates of Jerusalem, a destination that he set his sights on since chapter 9 and verse 51, where we were told, as the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem.
the royal city, the city of kings, the city of David, where the temple of the Lord stood, where pilgrims across the nation came to celebrate Passover. Most scholars surmise that the population in Jerusalem um, swelled by as much as six times its normal size. Josephus, the historian, says that based on the number the amount of lambs that were sacrificed at Passover, there might have been more than two million people in and around Jerusalem at this Passover. I tried to think of, a, of, of an, an example of what it might look like to me in my experience of crowds. How many of you have ever been in an AFL Grand Final? I, mean, I used to go all the time when I was younger with my mates and it's, a, it's an extraordinary experience to be a part of. There's tens of thousands of people heading to the MCG and back in the days when you used to just stand in the terraces, you would look around and there's just a mass of humanity around and there's this enormous expectation of what's about to take place. It's a microcosm of what it must have been like to be in Jerusalem. And as Jesus approaches the city, the gospel writers between them describe a scene that is charged with uh, just a sense of anticipation as many of the participants had never experienced before. Matthew records that the whole city is in an uproar as Jesus approaches and enters the gates. John tells us that the news had spread of the raising of Lazarus that had just taken place in Bethany and the people were expecting as to what, what might happen next. Over the course of the previous three years, there would have been few people in Israel who would not have heard of this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus. Perhaps they or someone they knew were healed by him. Maybe an uncle or aunt were present when a huge crowd were fed with nothing more than a boy's lunch. Some had witnessed his authoritative teaching for themselves as opposed to what they were used to hearing. There would have been those who through direct witness or second-hand testimony knew of his followers. Others were aware of his desires to, to meet the needs of the most sinful, lost, lonely and marginalised of society. There is this sense of anticipation in the air. Would he act in accordance with their view of what Messiah would do? And as we've read already, as he approaches Jerusalem, we can't help but see that Jesus' time has come. Whereas the people sought to make him king by force in the past, now he will bring his mission to its ultimate conclusion. From foreshadowing the finding of the cult and writing it in fulfilment of Zechariah, to being proclaimed king by the adoring crowd of, of followers, right through to his weeping and his subsequent judgment over Jerusalem, and then on to his entering and cleansing of the temple. What we see is Messiah in control. He's demonstrating his authority, submitting to the Father's will in fulfilment of the scriptures. And as I continue to, to read through this account over the last few weeks, I cannot help but see that the participants in this momentous occasion are significant. They're significant in that there are three different groups. There are his disciples present, his followers, 
There were those who were openly antagonistic, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the leaders in the city. Jesus' enemies. And then there was this great general populace. Those people who were there for the ride, wondering what they might witness, anticipating the teacher might bring an end to Roman rule with signs and wonders. They were there for the show. Interested in so far as it might mean something for themselves. They are what I would call the apathetic majority. While ever they were entertained or fed or healed, there was some sort of interest. And as I've thought about those three three groups, I cannot help but wonder, where do we fit in? Who is Jesus to you? There are many in this world today who will go to their deathbeds as staunch enemies of Christ, not willing or wanting to be found in the light, denying the gospel message, even more than that, actively seeking to undermine or dilute its power and even seeking to convince others to follow suit. Like the Pharisees, chief priests, the scribes, they're full of dead men's bones. Those who through their own selfish desires traded the truth of God for a lie. But there are also those by God's grace who will go to their deathbeds as true defenders of the faith. They proclaim Christ as Lord and King, embracing the gospel message as their lives are transformed from darkness into light. May we here today be counted among them. Yet most of what we see in our setting around us are those of the apathetic majority. Here is a group that longs for a miracle, a sign or entertainment, some sort of proof that we can show them that Jesus is real. And their interest continues so long as he meets their base needs. Here is a group that is all too quick to blame God for the injustice they see in the world or in their own lives, or the bad things that befall them, yet they congratulate themselves for the success, wealth, or gifting they attain. So I ask again, who is Jesus to you? Are you a follower, or just plodding along with the crowd? And friends, this is a significant moment. Let's not ignore what's staring us in the face. This is Jesus being hailed for who he is in full authority to the point that if he would not acknowledge as such, even the stones would cry out. The crowd acknowledge him as king. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, hang on, do you not hear what these people are saying? Can you stop them, correct them? Jesus said, if they did not confess this moment in history, the very stones would cry out. It was his time. And we know that the significance of the next few days would send shockwaves throughout human history. In no way did the events to come take Jesus by surprise. Verses 41 to 44, we see as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, he pronounces that the city is lost. Due to its failure to acknowledge the Christ, 
It's lack of discernment for knowing what makes for peace. Believing somehow that they would create change by force, not as what Jesus had continued to teach over and throughout his ministry, that true change takes place in the heart. Whichever prime minister we have is not going to change a man's heart. But changing men and women's hearts in our society will transform the society we live in. Because as we're about to read in the last few verses in chapter 19, there is a self-centred, stubborn, hard-hearted leadership that believes salvation of the nation would come through a Messiah who would set them free, free through the destruction of the Roman masters. And so we read from verse 45 to the end of the chapter, as Jesus continues to herald his arrival, he clears the temple of those who will make money out of the pilgrims who seek to worship Yahweh at this Passover time. And he announces his arrival through his actions, just as he did at the start of his ministry. He clears the temple. He announces his arrival in his decree. This is my house. My house shall be a house of prayer. You have turned it into a den of robbers. He announces his arrival through his teaching. At the end of chapter 19 there, we, we're told the people were hanging on his words. Uh, it, it, it's really sobering, I think, to, to think about the fact that as Jesus announces his arrival... Those who ought to have been in the best position to recognise the Messiah were in fact intent on his destruction. I mean, you can picture perhaps um, going to rabbinical school in Israel at the time. If you were a particularly, particularly gifted or um, learned student, if you had real giftings and a real ability, then I imagine that Jerusalem was the place to be. Jerusalem was the cornerstone of the Jewish faith, where the temple of the Lord stood. The best of the best, the cream of the crop were there. And yet they reject the one who was the fulfilment of the scriptures that they so desired to learn and comment on. Church, your leaders need your prayers. The pastors, the elders... Those people who are involved with Com, they need your prayers. Pray for their own walk with the Lord. Pray for their marriage and family relationships. That what you see in public is what they're like in private when no one sees. Pray that they would lead by example that they would embrace the word of God and be constantly transformed by it. Because if this is not taking place in the leadership here at Canterbury Gardens, what example is, are they setting? Where are they leading us? Well, we noticed throughout chapter 20, we didn't look at it, but throughout chapter 20, um, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, the Sadducees seek to trap him in his words. But in the end, they come to the realisation in verse 40 that um, they better not ask him any more questions. They no longer dare to ask him any more questions. 
because every question they asked, every, every effort they made to try and trap him in his words was turned around to expose them for who they were. Well, that other text that, uh, that John read for us so well this morning in Luke chapter 21 is what's commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. The disciples were perplexed about Jesus' pronouncement on Jerusalem and indeed the temple. Chapter 19, Jesus, Jesus pronounces that Jerusalem is lost. And in, in chapter 21 and verse 5, they're speaking about what an impressive edifice the temple is. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another. And the disciples ask, how can this be? Although the temple hadn't been completed in its building works, it would be in the future. And it was designed to be a magnificent edifice, to stand alongside the, the pyramids as a, as a testimony to man's engineering feats. How can it be destroyed within a generation? And so this, uh, this passage in Luke 21 takes up the theme of Jerusalem's coming judgment. And as we read through it, it's clear to us that it's prophetic in nature. We, we understand the direct meaning of the temple and indeed the whole city of Jerusalem being destroyed. We understand that as a historical event. AD 70, the Roman general Titus, Titus who would later become the emperor of Rome, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it for a number of months. And the Romans were so incensed, so angry with the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, resisting their, their demands, that when they finally entered the city, they laid it to waste. And apart from what we now know as the Wailing Wall and a few ramparts here and there, there is nothing else left standing. Yet, but we cannot help but see that the circumstances leading to Jerusalem's destruction mirror that of Jesus' return. Verse 10, it says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Down to verse 27, And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. When Jesus comes again, it won't be as a humble servant, but with power and great glory. The heavens will be shaken. When Jesus comes again, no one will be left wondering who he is. Perhaps everyone won't embrace him for who he is, but no one will be left to question who is this that is come. Everyone will be confronted with the almighty splendor of our Saviour, Jesus. And as I continue to read through this passage, I can see many practical applications for us to take away in relation to what Jesus reminds us we should and shouldn't be doing as we await his return. Firstly, Jesus says in, in verse 8, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Do not be led astray by false prophets. Now we understand if someone stands up today and says, I am Jesus, come back, we know not to believe that. We know the scriptures say that's not right. 
but there are plenty of other subtle false teachings that seep their way into church life that we need to be aware of. The culture we live in all around us, people bow down to the false gods, the false prophets of our age. They proclaim the gods of money, power, sex, self-sufficiency and pride, just to name a few. And sadly, there are those who take these worldviews and bundle them up in Christian jargon to make them much more palatable to the elect. And, and we've all heard them before. God wants to bless you financially. God loves you. He wants to bless you financially. One wonders what the early church would have thought of such a statement. If you're out of work or suffering an illness or down on your luck, it's because you haven't got enough faith. What a horrendous thing to say to someone who's suffering. Where we cannot acknowledge and not recognise the fact that God's strength is perfected in weakness that God is glorified through the victorious living of his people, even through suffering. We have this concept of the mo- at the moment that is tolerance at all expense. Tolerance even at the expense of biblical truth. In our society, it's, and even in church circles, It's hard to hear people talk much about sin, to call sin for what it is. Salvation is by faith, but if you want to be truly right with God, add something else. Make sure you you give a certain amount faithfully. Make sure you're always at church because that's a true sign. Make sure you're at small group or whatever it is. We know... The scriptures tell us salvation is by faith alone. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. We can, in fact, do nothing to keep it. It's all of Jesus. Peter warns us in his second epistle about false teachers. He says there will also be false prophets among the people, just as there were false prophets and false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Don't be led astray by false teaching, by false prophets. Don't be led ast- don't, do not fear for your testimony. Verse 13, this will be an opportunity to be to bear witness, settle therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. If you belong to him, God will give you the right words to say at the right time. Jesus had had talked about this earlier in Luke chapter 12, where he said, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you ought to say. If the Spirit of God dwells within you, the Spirit of God will sustain you for any task that you are called to. I, I love the, 
the words in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. I often remind myself and remind other people of it. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. God doesn't ask us all to be theologically perfect. It's not about how much we know. It's not about how many memory verses we we have up here. What Jesus asks us is to be able to share what he has done for us. That's all. Maybe you can't answer all the questions that people ask of you, but what you can do is say, this is what Jesus has done for me. Don't be led astray. Don't fear for your testimony. And don't live in fear. Don't be surprised by the turmoil around you. Verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults and rumours of wars, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not come at once. Yes, there's war around us. There's famine. We see gross injustice on our news telecast every night. And yes, we should pray. Yes, we grieve over what we see. Yes, we should help wherever practically the Lord leads us to. Yet these things ought not overwhelm us. And we ought never forget where our security lies. Not in the hands of the politicians. Not in the stock market. Not in that superation nest egg that we're building. It doesn't rely on the housing boom. In our job, our social status or even our intellect for it all can be disappeared, be taken away like that. Rather, our security ought to, ought to lie in a saviour who has opened the way for an eternal security that nothing, can, nothing in all creation can undermine. Don't be led astray. Don't fear for your testimony. Don't live in fear. Don't be surprised by what transpires around you. But do, Jesus said, take heart. Verse 28. Now then, when these things begin to take place, strengthen up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Take heart. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when. And anyone who says they, they do is not telling you the truth. We don't know when. But we know one thing. It is closer today than it has ever been. And over and above it, every, anything else, as Jesus finishes this, this discourse, he asks us to be prepared. Verse 34, But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Be prepared by watching yourselves and being alert. Literally, stay awake. It's such a subtle thing, yet a powerful trap to be so consumed by the trappings of this life, of this world we live in, to truly miss the fact that eternity awaits. Our life is a vapour. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And the older I get, the more I tend to appreciate this, that um, the bulk of my life is over. <laughs> uh, 
in a human sense. We are here today, gone tomorrow. Take inventory. Where do, you, where do your joys, thoughts, priorities, hopes and dreams lie? During the week in small group, we were talking about the issue of the true cost of discipleship. And someone mentioned the fact, who is the preeminent one in your life? Finally, Jesus says, be prepared by praying. Pray that you might be able to stand before the Son of Man. That one day when you see him as he is, you can boldly approach knowing that in Christ you're accepted. So as we conclude this morning, let me just ask you again, who is Jesus to you? As he approaches Jerusalem and within a few days of this being willingly laying down his life, where do you fit in? Are you an enemy? Are you a disciple? Or are you part of that apathetic majority who would so quickly turn and be baying for his blood in a few days' time? As a disciple, what are you doing to challenge the status quo of the apathetic majority around you? How does your testimony impact the world around you? Do your priorities, commitments, and attitudes reflect the God you serve or do they simply mirror that of society? One of the things that I was challenged with through this um, section in God's word was that it gives God no pleasure to pronounce judgment over sin. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, not over the city itself, not over the buildings as such, over its inhabitants. Their sin would lead to their destruction. It gives God no pleasure. Yet his just, righteous nature demands that there is an accounting. And indeed, that is why Jesus came. That he would take on the penalty that we so rightly deserve. As John mentioned earlier, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We as a church need godly men and women to lead in this place. Would you be praying with us that God will continue to raise these people up in all the different ministry areas of church? The music ministry is a great blessing for us as a church. They have such a role to play in uh, the spiritual, the, the worship scene that is set each morning. Will you pray that God will continue to grow them, that God will continue to raise up other gifted people to help in that area? And all the other ministries, the youth group, the play group, these wonderful kids that are out hearing about Jesus this morning, would you continue to pray that God will raise up people who will have hearts for these ministries? Tell me, do you anticipate Jesus' return? Does it excite you? Because one thing is certain, and by God's grace, may we never stop proclaiming it here at Canterbury Gardens. One thing is certain. Either we will go to meet him, or he will return. Will you be ready? 
or will you be consumed with the things that will all be left behind? Let me, let me pray for us this morning. Our Father God, we want to thank you that we can confidently know this morning that Jesus will return. And yet as we, as we glory in these facts, we are also aware that it was a horrible price that he had to pay as he went to Jerusalem, as he went to the cross of Calvary. Thank you for his victorious approach to Jerusalem. Thank you that he can boldly proclaim he is Messiah, come to save his people. May you help us in our own walk with you to proclaim that in our own lives, in our own attitudes, thoughts and actions. And may we have an impact in the community around us as we seek to bless you and, uh, and proclaim the gospel message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.